Thank you, Brendan, and good morning. It's a joy, as always, to be with you today. Uh, before I get going on my message, just a couple kind of household notices, some nice things to say. First of all, the Zambia team has made it back in one piece, I think. Uh, and we will we'll take some time to feature some of their stories uh, in the near future, and that will be exciting to share those things that have happened uh, in that space. I'm excited about what I've heard and excited about what we've seen in those things. Um, I've mentioned already that we're having a membership class uh, day on September the 30th. I encourage you just to mark your calendars for that. I've also mentioned that we're going to be teaching on Friday nights the Book of Romans through the fall, and I mentioned that for your interest as well. One of the reasons we're doing Romans is because we're taking time in September uh, to talk about our church vision for quite a while. About five weeks, we'll talk about the things we're for and what we're interested in in the North Shore, what we want to define our ministry in this space, uh, and then we're going to move into some, some other kinds of teaching, and so we need some good Bible to balance that. So teaching Romans is a way to make sure that we are consistently um, in the Word of God in that season, which is terribly important. And one other really fun kind of in-house notice, this is wonderful to say, as many of you know, uh, our preteen ministry associate, Michelle Jackson, has moved on, and we have a new preteen ministry associate, and that is our very own Megan Linton, who has been our children's ministry worker. <clears throat> That's good. You have to practice that wave, Megan, so you can... Oh, that's good. Oh, that, that was it. That's why we hired you. So um, uh, we're very excited to, to bring Megan into this position, to welcome her into um, an increased pastoral role with us. Um, we're very pleased with what it means for our preteens and for the families in our church. Uh, and so we're very excited. We'll bless you formally uh, later, but it's worth uh, you all knowing that this has happened and is what's going on on our team. Okay, with those little things said, uh, let's continue in our series of New Testament characters that we've been in for this period of the summer. And today we've got two very similar but very different men, two characters who are very similar but very different. Uh, they both bear strong similarities, both are Roman officials, uh, both play an important role in the New Testament story, and both of them have encounters with the truth. And that's the things that I want us to draw out together today. So the first of our characters is Pilate. Uh, you'll know Pilate uh, pretty well. We've got a photo of him in a second here. Go ahead and move. I didn't uh, notify you of the slide, so go ahead. Next. Okay, I'll keep going. There's two things, Pilate's name. Okay, there we go. This is one of the most famous paintings of all time. Uh, it's called the Ecce Homo. You've got Pilate, his back to us, and he's pointing to Jesus. You'll know him. You'll know him especially because of his role in the Passion Week of Jesus' life. He's the Roman governor who oversees the trial which convicts Jesus to death. This is what you'll know. Now, a Roman governor was a very powerful official in the ancient world. Uh, the Roman Empire, what was fascinating about it is that they controlled the entire Mediterranean. The empire surrounded the entire Mediterranean Sea, and that gave them access to incredible wealth and incredible power and um, incredible freedom. You had free trade for the first time. You could move uh, in a way of not having to be afraid of bandits and things because the Romans had such power and control. And so what they did, because it's such a big empire and there's no telephones, is they were actually very competent administrators. And they divided each area of the empire into provinces, and they appointed loyal governors over those provinces. Now, one of the backwater provinces in the southeastern corner of the empire was Judea, the area of southern Palestine, which used to be where Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel was and was now this new Roman province. And the governorship of that province was given in about the 20s or 30s to this guy named Pontius Pilate. Now, Judea was not a particularly alluring post. It was a backwater 
Like, you were not the cream of the cream to get this posting in Judea. And there were a few reasons for that. Probably one of them was that you weren't going to be able to make yourself rich very easily. Like, it's easier to fleece people in other provinces because they've got more natural wealth. And Judea's got a lot of deserts and things. It's hard to, hard to become rich off of robbing people in the same way, okay? Which is one of the ways, one of the reasons to become governor in the ancient world is that no one in the modern world does, never mind, okay, let's just leave that be, okay? Uh, for another reason, the inhabitants of Judea had a reputation as being particularly difficult to control. They were rebellious, they were bitter, they fought all the time, and they, it was always for these kind of obscure religious reasons. It was a religious backwater. It was not a place that you wanted to be. An interesting fact, it's one of these local rebellions in Israel in about 70 that happened, 70 AD, this local rebellion happens, and the Romans finally snap and say, that's it. And a Roman general named Titus leads an army in. He sacks Jerusalem, lays waste to the city, destroys the temple brick by brick, leaves no stone on top of another, exiles the Judeans, and completely lays waste. There's no more Israel. After within about 50 years, there are no more Jews living in Judea because the Romans have been fed up with this thing. In fact, the Romans are so mad, they changed the name from Judea to Palestine as a way to say, you Jews have no place in this land any longer. The Romans were very forceful of this. So it's one of these uh, backwater rebellions. The Romans, when they got fed up with you, they just killed you. This is how they dealt with you. So we don't know a ton about Pilate outside of his record in the New Testament. He's real. He's a real person. There's other evidences about him. He's a governor. At some point, we know he gets sent back to Rome. He loses his post. And uh, in the records, it looks like he put down a rebellion, but he did it in a particularly harsh way and irritated the inhabitants so, so much that he actually got fired. Right? So he's sent back to Rome for these things. But it's, um, my guess is he was just glad to be rid of the place. Right? He just wants to be out of this. Second character is Cornelius. Cornelius. He's a centurion of a group called the Italian Cohort. Again, Romans are amazing administrators, and they divide their armies into impressive groups. Now, here's a tricky thing, right? You've heard this your whole life. Centurion, century, 100 men. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> the centurion is in charge of what looks like 80 men. <laughs> I don't know why. It's kind of like the gigabyte, megabyte thing. The numbers don't add up. Okay. Five of you understood that joke, and that's really okay. The centurion has commanded between 80 and 100, and there are six centuries that make up a cohort. So something between five and 600 men. So, so, so Cornelius is one of six uh, ruling officers of this army group stationed in Syria at this time. He lives in this northern town called Caesarea. That's the same town where Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. So major events in Jesus' life happened in this place. And as a centurion, Cornelius has status and authority and influence. He is a visible reminder of Roman military presence and oppression. And that means he would very likely draw the hatred of local people. Uh, and also the cronyism of people who want to use his position to get ahead, right? Never quite be certain of any relationship he receives in his life. So what would it be like to be a Roman in Judea-Palestine? What would it like to be one of these oppressors in this state? I actually I came across a passage the other day. I was reading um, one of George Orwell's essays called um, On Shooting an Elephant, which if you've not read is actually quite a brilliant read. But I'm going to read these passages to give you some, I, I like it, because it'll give you a flavor of perhaps what it's like to be uh, someone in this position. So here's what he writes. So uh, he, he's, uh, George Orwell is stationed as a policeman in South Asia, and he's writing about his experience as part of the British Raj. So he says, in Lower Burma, I was hated by large numbers of people. 
the only time in my life that I have been important enough for this to happen to me. I was a subdivisional police officer of the town, and in an aimless, petty kind of way, anti-European feeling was very bitter. No one had the guts to raise a riot, but if a European woman went through the bazaars alone, somebody would probably spit Beetlejuice all over her dress. As a police officer, I was an obvious target and was baited whenever it seemed safe to do so. When a nimble Burman tripped me up on the football field and the referee, another Burman, looked the other way, the crowd yelled with hideous laughter. This happened more than once. In the end, the sneering yellow faces of young men that met me everywhere, the insults hooted after me when I was at a safe distance, got badly on my nerves. The young Buddhist priests were the worst of all. There were several thousands of them in the town, and none of them expect, seemed to have anything to do except stand on the street corners and jeer at Europeans. All this was perplexing and upsetting, for at that time I had already made up my mind that imperialism was an evil thing, and the sooner I chucked up my job and got out of it, the better. Theoretically, and secretly of course, I was all for the Burmese and all against their oppressors, the British. As for the job I was doing, I hated it more bitterly than I can perhaps make clear. In a job like that, you see the dirty work of empire at close quarters. The wretched prisoners huddling in the stinking cages of the lockups, the gray cowed faces of the long-term convicts, the scarred buttocks of the men who have been flogged with bamboo. All these oppressed me with an intolerable sense of guilt, but I could get nothing into perspective. I was young and ill-educated, and I had had to think out my problems in utter silence that is imposed on every Englishman in the East. I did not even know that the British Empire was dying. Still less did I know that it is a great deal better than younger empires that are going to supplant it. All I knew was that I was stuck between my hatred of the empire I served and my rage against the evil-spirited little beasts who tried to make my job impossible. With one part of my mind, I thought of the British Raj as an unspeakable tyranny, as something clamped down in secular secularum in this world as it is, upon the will of prostrate peoples. With another part, I thought that the greatest joy in the world would be to drive a bayonet into a Buddhist priest's guts. Feelings like these are the normal byproducts of imperialism. Ask any Anglo-Indian official if you catch them off duty. Now, what I love about that, love is the wrong word, what I think is deeply insightful is that uh, I bet Cornelius could have written the same thing. I sit here as an agent of empire among people who hate empire, and at the same time I feel discomfort with my empirical powers, and I also at the same time hate the way I have to relate to people who are under me. Uh, and, and, and power used in these ways puts us in some terrible positions. It's a fascinating passage, and that's why I wanted to highlight it for you this morning, because I think it gives us insight into how Pontius Pilate might feel about the people. Yeah, I'd pretty much like to crucify all of you, right? And be done. I, not me and you, Sarah, right? right? And on, on his bad days, I bet Cornelius felt like, man, I wish we could just wipe this place clean. I'm so sick of it. And the people around him are thinking, man, I wish we could do away with him. He walks in the market, probably gets spit upon. There's a little extra poop in the walkway as he goes by, right? And he knows. It becomes troubling. So two men, Cornelius, Pilate, both powerful, both with positions of authority, both likely receiving at a baseline level the, the hatred of their, the quiet contempt of their neighbors. They are Gentiles in the worst sense of the word. Foreigners religious outsiders, oppressors, people who don't belong in our sacred land. And these are some of the things that draw them similarly. But each man also has a unique encounter with the truth. Let's look at Pilate's encounter with the truth first, okay? Set the stage, it's Passion Week. 
Jesus has come into Jerusalem. The chief priests are looking for a reason to kill Jesus. He's had the last supper with his disciples. It's Thursday night, and now they've retreated to the Mount of Olives so they can pray together. He's betrayed by Judas, handed over to the Jewish authorities. You remember that part of the story. And now there's some funny stuff that starts to happen because the Jewish authorities, all other authorities, have no authority to kill Jesus, right? They're in charge but not in charge. And so they have to appeal to kind of secondary powers to find a way to get Jesus killed. And so now, if you read the four Gospels, some of the narrative is a little different. It looks like uh, they go to Pilate, and then Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and then they go back to Pilate, and there's this kind of like, we're just looking for someone to kill this guy. Can you help us? And it's, a, it's almost comic in a kind of dark, dark sort of way, okay? And so then there's this moving around, and Pilate finally has to make the decision about this man, Jesus. And I want to pick up the text in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 28 to 38, where we read Jesus' encounter with Pilate in this passion story. Let me read this for you now. The words will be on the screen behind me. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the praetorium, the Roman area, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover, right? So they're, they're not willing to be ritually defiled, but they're willing to murder somebody. This is, this is part of the irony. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate, the foreign official who's bothered by the local Jewishness and religious stuff. He's like, fine, you won't come into my house. I'll come out to you just to get this done. You can feel the tension in some of these things. So what's the accusation? Verse 30, they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's a great phrase. If he weren't bad, why would we be bringing him here? So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. Now, Jesus comes into the praetorium, which doesn't have a choice, I suppose. He says, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's a fascinating encounter, isn't it, between these two people. On the one hand, you've got the man with all of the local power. He's got, he is the main muscle in the region, primary muscle. He can do what he wants. He's got Roman armies behind him with a proven track record of wiping out people, right? He's got massive power. He's got, he's got carpenters on staff to supply all the crosses he requires for the people he's going to crucify this week. He's unconcerned about these things. He can kill you in a heartbeat. He's got a sense, probably, that he's above this backwater place and tired of being in it, and he's irritated, probably, this matter has been brought to his attention at all. This seems like one of these religious debates. Why am I being bothered with it? On the other hand, here's Jesus standing in front of him. He's got all the power in the world. He's got armies of angels behind him. He can summon the power of Almighty God in a moment's notice. He could smite Pilate to death without even, he could wink and Pilate could die, right? 
we don't reckon, the disparity of power is immeasurable in these ways. He is the God of the universe in human flesh, come to save his people and even save someone like Pontius Pilate. Right? He's, and Pilate doesn't realize the power thing going on here. And so he's not irritated. He's patient in the face of this oppression. He's incredibly patient. Jesus' answers are very measured. He gives good and straightforward answers in some ways. And so here's a man of power who speaks the truth in the face of threatening earthly power. I go back to verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You think you're the power, I'm actually the power. You think you know what power is, but I will show you what power is through my self-sacrifice. And my power is bound to the testimony, and I won't lie, and I won't abuse, and I won't misuse language even in these moments. And Pilate's response, John 18, 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? That's an arresting moment. Um, I think a lot of philosophers think that maybe Pilate is an amateur philosopher at this point, right? He's, but he doesn't seem to be engaging in debate. He doesn't want it to go on, doesn't want to discuss anything further with Jesus. This is where the debate ends. It's used in a way to kind of dodge it. And I think here's the key. Is it confronted with the person who has the power to bring him life? Pilate responds with ambivalence. It's ambivalent to the truth. It's the ambivalence of not caring. Eh, does it matter, right? It's the ambivalence of recognizing that if what, we say, what you say is true, I have to change, and it's too much work. I might have to get up. I might have to do something. Eh, I don't want to be bothered. It's the ambivalence of someone not wanting to be bothered with the life of a man, so he gives in to the desire of the crowd, so maybe he can go back to watching his afternoon hockey match. Ambivalence, in a sense. It's funny, there's some other ambivalences in the text. Um, earlier, one of the other Gospels, you read that Herod was excited to see Jesus because he wanted him to perform a miracle for him, right? And that's ambivalent too, isn't it? It's the ambivalence of entertainment. I'm not interested in you, Jesus, for the things you can say and do. I want to see, I want to see a show. Come on, monkey Jesus, do your dance. And I propose to you that some of us approach faith as if we received a miracle we believe, right? Come on, God of the universe, perform for me. And that's an ambivalent response to the truth. So Pilate comes face to face to the Lord of life with the truth itself, and he decides he can't be bothered. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, he washes his hands, right? I wash my hands. This man's blood is not on me. That's the ultimate ambivalence. I'll kill you, but I don't have anything to do with you. Let's shift to Cornelius, different character. His text is Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 8. Now, this Acts story is huge. It's complex. It's part of a massive story, and I'm just going to barely scratch the surface of reading parts of it for you today. But here's what we're going to say. Acts chapter 10. Whoops, I highlighted the wrong thing. Verses 1-8. Now, it says this. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? Uh, this is another word for Lord. And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, 
dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, Cornelius summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Look at the courtesy of the angel. He gives them very specific address. You're going to go find Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Don't get lost on the way, you know. I want you to find the right spot. There's a courtesy about how God speaks to us when he does speak to us very clearly. Okay, if you're an ordinary Judean or Galilean in the ancient world, you're never going to have access to Pilate, right? I mean, you've got a chance in Vancouver that you could be in, uh, in Loblaws and you could run into the mayor, right? It's possible. But your chances of running into Pontius Pilate in the market are nil. He's not going to the bank. He's not doing these things. But you are going to come shoulder to shoulder with a centurion. And so Pilate may have more power, but the centurion is far closer. And you can get at him. And you can see him. And he could become an object of this hatred in these things. And so in all likelihood, you're going to hate the guys in a much more vivid way than you'd hate the governor because he's so distant. But what do we learn about Cornelius? We learn that he's devout. He fears Yahweh, the God of Israel, even though he's a Gentile. He gives of his Roman pay to help the poor, which is mind-boggling in its own way. And he's someone who prays. Now, how did Cornelius learn about God? We have no idea. Where did this happen? How did it come about? We don't learn. But maybe he probably grows up a good Roman, right? He's worshiping Jupiter and the goddess Roma and Mars. He's doing his sacrifices and he's studying these things. He gets his posting to Judea, Syria, Palestine, and maybe he starts doing some local research. I guess I'm going to be in this place. I might as well learn about the local customs before I show up. And he begins to read and research into the history of the place, and he probably gets connected to some people who've got some books, and he finds out about the Torah, and then maybe he meets a friendly rabbi who's willing to teach him some things. And one way or the other, he begins to be exposed to these things. And in all likelihood, given the years he's posted there, he's there at the same time that Jesus' ministry is happening. He's saying, there's something in this. There's something. There's got to be something in this. So we don't know the journey, but we do know the result. Cornelius is one of these outsiders who's very close to the kingdom of God. He's, he's, he's pre-believing in many ways. So what happens? God reaches out in this vision, tells him to send for Peter. Now, the part I didn't read is that meanwhile, Peter's also having a vision. It's a really weird vision. He's sitting there, he's really hungry, and he sees this sheet lowered down from heaven with all kinds of food in it. And it's all kinds of food that Jews can eat and all kinds of food that Jews can't eat. And the voice from heaven says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And three times this happens, and then the messenger from Cornelius shows up at the door, and Peter goes, oh, it's not about food. It's about people. I don't get to exclude people anymore. I guess I've got to go see this Gentile. Remember how the Jews wouldn't go into the praetorium because it would defile them? And Peter comes up to Cornelius' door, and he's like, this would normally defile me, but God says I shouldn't call anyone unclean. So he walks into the house. And Cornelius then repeats the angel's message, and he says these words, Acts 10, 33. So I, Cornelius, sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, that's the best church audience ever, right? We're here, you've commanded, we're ready to receive. And Peter begins to teach. It's great. He starts teaching. He doesn't even finish the message, and the Holy Spirit drops with power on the group. 
And Peter's like, I guess, you know, didn't get to the altar call. I had four points prepared. I only got through one. It's a bit disappointing. But what could prevent us from welcoming these people into the kingdom now? And Cornelius becomes the first, his house will become the first Gentile converts. And this changes the course of the world. It's God's plan and God's stuff. So what's Cornelius' difference? Confronted with the person who is bringing him the word of life, Cornelius responds with eagerness. Well, that's hard to see. My fault. Eagerness. He's built up a life of devotion. He's a seeker after the truth. And now he has this reputation as a devout man. It's an inconvenient reputation. Inasmuch as he's close to the local rats, he's unliked by his Roman cohorts, right? Maybe keeps him from promotion. Oh, that Cornelius, he's a religious guy. And we hate these religious people. You can see how his devotion, he's giving of his pay, his Roman pay to help poor Jewish people. This is... Very inconvenient areas of devotion. But his whole life now is built around hearing from the Lord. He's been praying, and now the Lord is speaking, and he has this encounter with the truth. He encounters it secondhand from Peter, and because of his response, he becomes his first Gentile. So, a couple questions for us. The first is, how do we respond to the truth? And the second question is, how do we get to talk about the truth when we share it? How do we respond? In both our stories, truth is embodied in a person. For Pilate, it's the physical person of Jesus, and he sits in a kind of authority over Jesus. For Cornelius, it's the messenger who carries this. Peter is the messenger who carries the message. And in both circumstances, I want to propose to you that truth is like a plumb line. I realize we don't have as many carpenters these days. My grandfather used to do a lot of work, and he had a lot of tools that I inherited. I've got some carpenters over here. who do. Some of you were in Zambia, right? So, you know, plumb line looks like a, like a tape measure, and it's got a weight on the end of it. You can drop it down and pull it. It's lovely chalked thing, and you can pull the string and whoosh, snap it on a wall, and you know exactly what the straight line looks like. It uses gravity to tell you what's right and wrong. And truth is a lot like that. It shows us what's straight. And then the more we look at the truth, the more we realize how unstraight we are. We realize that we're curved and broken, and things are out of place. And so in the same way, we can respond to the knowledge of the truth with ambivalence. I can't be bothered to change. Or with eagerness. No, I want things to be right. We can be like Pilate, or we can be like Cornelius. We can be ambivalent, or we can be eager for the truth. So I'll name some of these things. Are you ambivalent? Do you find the teachings of Jesus inconvenient? Do you ignore the ones that you don't like? or that might require you to change in any way, however small it's being invited from you? Are you here to be entertained rather than be challenged and changed? That's an ambivalence too, isn't it? Do you dodge the claims of Christ's church by equivocation, right? Do we really know those things, right? Haven't things changed over time? Aren't we, don't we have more information now than they have then? And I propose to you that each of those things are a form of the question, what is truth? Just dodging the difficult bits. Or like Pilate, do we listen week by week and then wash our hands as we walk out the door? Okay? Or are you eager? Are you seeking the Lord between Sundays? Are you eager for his face and for his voice? Are you obedient even when it's inconvenient and costly to you, to relationships and friends and people? And are you ready to move when God speaks? Are you ready in a heartbeat to move when he speaks? The question may be this, are you a lover of the truth or a dabbler in it? You love the truth? You receive it when it comes to you? You just kind of like play in the truth from time to time. 
only along for the ride until it gets difficult. Now, I've presented these as a contrast, but the truth of the matter is, none of us is all one or the other. In each of us, there's a bit of ambivalence and a bit of eagerness. There are parts where we really are eager and want the truth. There are parts where we're studiously looking the other way from what God is asking from us. And I'm not here to shame you if you don't feel like you're in the right space, because that's not what we do either. You know, sometimes what happens is that certain people get eager in certain ways, and they say, if you're not eager like me, you're not a real Christian, right? And you realize, maybe that's where God's calling you right now, and maybe I'm being called in a slightly different way, but we can be one church together, can't we? We could do that. There's other dangers as well. Sometimes we're eager for the truths that comfort us, and we're ambivalent towards the truths that make us uncomfortable, right? Especially when the things that comfort us have to do with people who are outside, the others, people who don't agree with us, those bad people out there, and then we're feeling good at the expense of others, and that's not the kingdom of God either. We have to look at the truths that make us uncomfortable as well as the ones that give us joy. And yet we should be seeking to be eager and more eager and yet more eager for God and his word. Okay, the last question. How do we share the truth? Let's assume that we all love, let's assume that most of us love the truth. We want the word of Jesus in our lives. We want to be moving more and more towards his kingdom. What does it mean for us to be able to people who share this truth with others? And I'm going to list four things for you as we go through this right now. The first thing I want to say is this. I want you to love the truth. Love the truth. Make yourself a lover of what is true and good. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Hold up good things. Focus your heart on good things, on true things, on upright things. Love those things. Let them shape you and form you and develop you and become a lover of what is true. I think this is terribly important for us. And the good news, of course, is that the truth is both a person, Jesus, and documented in his word, which points us to Jesus. And so loving the truth is a way of loving the word of God. Second thing to do, lead with the truth. Lead with the truth. Love the truth and lead the truth, okay? Uh, You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to prepare yourself for every conversation. You don't have to have, like, a specific answer for every question that every person brings to you. You just have to kind of know Jesus and let him guide you in those moments. I know who's true, and I'm going to go with him, and I'll do the best I can with what I've been given. Uh, Knowing the truth doesn't mean you have to know everything. We're not supposed to become omniscient. This is good news for all of us. All right, but we do have to be faithful. I'm going to remind you of 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, the account is for the hope that is in you. I know Jesus. I know that he's saved me and given his life for me. I know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is not a terribly complex truth. I've not given you a massive statement of pages and pages of theology. It's a truth that I think each of you in Christ can testify to. And what you're ready to make a defense for is who God has, what God has done for me. And defense doesn't mean like shields and art, it just means I can speak about it accurately. I can present it when challenged. And so we lead with the truth. We don't have to lead with other things. Third thing to do is to discern your audience. 
you don't have to have every conversation. You don't have to respond to every Facebook post or tweet. You don't have to take up the challenge of every offensive t-shirt or flag or thing around you. You don't have to do that. You have to make a discernment about what's right and what's wrong and when you should speak. And I think you learn to read the room according to the principle of Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Do not get what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, Jesus is not saying that you should call people pigs. He's not saying, you know, you dog, and then walk away from the conversation. He's saying you acknowledge when this conversation isn't going to move anywhere. This isn't going to be fruitful. And actually, we have a model for it with Jesus speaking to Pilate, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't get into full discourse on who he is and what he's doing. He doesn't outline the entire theology of his kingdom mission to him. He says, um, Pilate says, are you a king? He says, "Uh, did you come up with this or did someone tell you? (laughs) And he's not dodging. He's just giving the best answer Pilate can hear. And he gets to the point where Pilate, he knows Pilate's not going to be able to hear him at some point. I am the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus says, this is as far as it goes. But I think, see, he doesn't say it. Something like, this is as far as it goes. But if you could know the truth, Pilate, your life would be changed, wouldn't it? And so he doesn't give him the things that can't be. Sometimes we have to make a decision. And sometimes you have to walk away from a conversation. But you still have to have presented the truth. You still have to know what is real. And they've heard it. But you don't have to fight for it. And that's part of discerning your audience in these ways. And the fourth and final thing I want us to do about sharing the truth is this. I want you to show no favoritism. Let's come back to Pilate and Cornelius. If you were making a judgment between these two guys, who is the more like, if you were going to headline famous or powerful Roman becomes Christian, who are you going to pick, right? Aren't you going to throw your resources at the pilots? Aren't you going to queue up to try and get more famous people to follow Jesus? Because they've got influence, they've got power, they've got position. Maybe, maybe, you know, he's got the ear of the emperor. Then we can, you know, we can shift things around this way. And if we show favoritism by, uh, by weighing where we share these things, we miss out. Because God's going to do his work through these Corneliuses, right? He's going to do this work through unknown people who've received the truth of God. We can't show favoritism in our speaking of the truth of word of God's word. So let me read to you this passage, and this is going to draw us to a close. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It's a brilliant passage. If you've not read it before, I commend it to you. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You see, you never know what God is going to do in that person's life. You never know what God might do. Now, God might save the rich man and do great things, or he might not, but he may very well save the poor man and do amazing things. But if we make the judgments ahead of time and we determine who we're going to share the word of God with based on it, we will always make mistakes. That's why we have to rely on the truth rather than our assessment of people. Because if we're assessing the situation, we make make bad judgments. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? 
Verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And now he talks about the law for a moment. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as though are those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Powerful words from James there about the danger of judging people based on how we think they're going to respond to the word of God. You don't know. You just don't know. And so all you can do is try to be faithful with the truth you have and speak that when you're called to speak it and be ready to represent it in a life that's devout and seeking to become eagerly devoted to the truth of Christ. And we're all on a journey to be more eager and more faithful in these things. I'm going to invite our musicians to come to the platform for our closing worship. And I want to say that we all hang in the balance between ambivalence and eagerness. And I would want us all to grow in eagerness. But I'm not going to tell you what that eagerness looks like. Because it will be formed as you seek the face of Jesus and he meets you. And he will grow that eagerness in you more and more as you pursue him. And that's what I want for you today and tomorrow and every day. More and more of King Jesus. Uh, will you stand with me? And I will pray for you. And then we will sing. And I will highlight that we have prayer ministers available. So Clive and Debbie, uh, Clive is one of our elders. Clive and Debbie will be over here, uh, available to pray with you. And I've got Gary and Janice as well. Oh, Janice, well, where's Gary? And Gary, okay. Gary was in Zambia. He's got the Zambia blessing. So if you really want to be blessed, you've got to go to the balcony today for prayer, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Call us to yourself and draw us in power into your presence. I ask these things and I ask for your presence in these next moments of responsive worship.